I'm Satya Doyle Bayak, and this is the Salome Podcast. Something is making its approach to us. Our wars are results of projection, of not being able to understand that what we are actually fighting externally is something we don't want to fight inside of ourselves. Here we are, how will we hold this? How will we hold the light inside the dark? If consciousness is going to shift on the planet, it shifts in the single individual. In each episode, my co-host Carol Ferris and I explore the social and personal relevance of Carl Jung's magnum opus, known as The Red Book. Carol and I began recording these episodes as live salons online on the first Sunday of our COVID quarantine in Portland, Oregon, in the spring of 2020. Each week, we welcome the community into our conversation with a concluding Q&A. We're gonna start again by lighting a candle and just gathering with a little ritual together. I do wanna light my candle in honor of John Lewis's passing. Uh, It really, again, just honoring genuine courage and genuine leadership in this time and genuine mentorship of youth stirs me every time I think his name. So honoring him. And Carol, should we just start with a little of what's happening in Portland today? You know, I don't know totally what I want to say about this, but just want to speak to the fact that in Portland, we're kind of at the epicenter right now of an enormous amount of, there's no word that I know to use, terror sort of comes to me. Um, You know, it really, I've been thinking a lot about Winston in 1984 and Kafka and I watched Enemy of the State last night, which is absolutely one of my favorite movies. You know, just (laughs) the reality on some level, I don't know how much of that is Hollywood and how much is quote unquote real, but just the fundamentals of power, you know, and, and controlled power and militaristic power. And it's terrifying to me. I mean, it's terrifying to me in my bones. And, you know, we're talking about hell today. We'll talk about war today. We're, we're talking about power But I think the last couple nights and days for me have been somewhat of a kind of trauma state where I can't tell of my dissociation and paranoia what is quote unquote real and what is being activated by, you know, my notions of what's happening. But I can say, I mean, part of how I started out this last few years was was reading um, with a group at Salome, um, Hannah Arendt's book, The Banality of Evil. And I think I titled the salon first, first they came for the immigrants, you know, and the banal, this book is all about the way that the Holocaust was a slow progression of events, right? It did not start with a bang. It was a slow progression of very smart and sadistic men, you know, navigating power and the abuses of power and what they could get away with without people getting too, you know, without people with privilege and money and, 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 and leadership or whatever being disturbed by it. And so, you know, it starts with the undocumented people. It starts with the homeless. It starts with queers. It starts with whoever in the time is on the outside of power. And it just slowly creeps into the center, you know? So I'm horrified by the fact that I think it seems quite clear that our mayor, Ted Wheeler has been in cahoots with the federal Homeland Security agents with whom they're, is no proper training and and no civil rights being enacted. There's no Miranda rights being read. I mean, the whole thing horrifies me deep into my soul. And again, I have to kind of shift out of like, what's paranoia? What's trauma? 
what's quote unquote reality. But I identify enough with the Cassandra myth. I have, you know, I mean, Enemy of the State is one of my favorite movies for a reason. <laughs> like, I, I understand 1984, like all this stuff. It's like, we all, I think, we're gathering together on some level for, for a feeling like, you know, something not good has been unfolding in our country for a very long time. But this is just another test of seeing federal agents in unmarked vans with no faces. I mean, talk about Watchmen. If people haven't seen Watchmen yet, the television show, you know, we're talking about faceless, nameless men, militaristic, showing up in unmarked vans and literally throwing people in vans without Miranda rights or anything. I mean, what is going on? You know, so I just need to speak to that today, speaking to the spirit of the times. Again, all of the Red Book is this this mixture of the spirit of the times with the spirit of the depths, right? It's this it's this meeting place. And so that's part for me of my dissociation of trying to find that meeting place. What is archetypal? What is a felt sense of what's unfolding here? You know, intuition. What is unknown history of militarism and power? So just kind of bringing that open and my deep, my deep, 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 deep hope that as this continues to unfold, what we're seeing is a move to a less militaristic society. Because, you know, and this, I'll just say this briefly, my support of the defunding police movement now is um, really born from the fact that I, having having worked downtown for a decade, having an office downtown, I called the police hesitantly and necessarily on probably 10 different occasions when my office was robbed, when people were having massive mental health crises on the street. I mean, any number of things. And every single instance I called the police, both for myself and others, it was completely useless. And I don't say that against any police officers. It was just a literally useless endeavor. I never my office was robbed. I had security footage of who did it. And it went to nothing because that's not really what they're built for. They're not built for mental health crises, you know? So we need to be reworking this system. And, I, and I'm just putting that out here to our community, to my community, to the Salome space, to just honor what I hope is unfolding right now and all of my fears around it, you know, this mixture. So again, that's Carol, do you want to speak to that at all before we kind of, I know we're going to go into, you know, the Red Book. First of all, I think, you know, clearly we're talking about trauma, that it's traumatic. And that I think about our conversations with Dr. Brewster, Dr. Fanny Brewster, who the union who talks about collective trauma, individual trauma and collective trauma. And what gets triggered by these times? I'm, I have this um, not so random association. I had the I had the very good fortune to see the Indian woman, uh, Native American Indian woman authoress uh, Leslie Marmon Silco, who spoke here to the Literary Society several years ago. And the woman who was interviewing her said, "You know, we have when I teach your work, we have a tough time because you don't write in narrative straightforward this, then this, then this time, and we never know where we are in time." And Leslie Marmon Silco says, "Narrative time was invented by criminals to bury their past." And the audience, everybody, like, "Okay, what's going to come next?" And she said. My great-great-grandmother was on the death march with Kit Carson in the South American Southwest. It's in her bones. She told my grandmother. It's in my grandmother's bones. My grandmother told my mother. It's in my mother's bones. 
it's in my bones. But if I talk to someone else, they go, oh, that happened a long, long time ago. And so I think that's what we're present with right now is that we're getting a a pretty heavy dose of collective trauma around how will we live together? How will we, how does the capital S self join all the other selves in a way that there's recognition? And right now we have this very powerful trio, Saturn, the principle of contraction and structure, Pluto, the underworld, hell, we're going here, and Jupiter, which makes everything big and expansive. And this has been going on and developing and strengthening for the past two and a half, three years. It really started in 2008, but it's intensified in the last two and a half years. So this issue of how how do we build a society, how do we build a just society is before us. And it's we're not the first people this has been before, speaking of things that are in our bones, and we won't be the last ones. A part of, of what I want to talk about, I mean, we're, as we get into reading the chapter Hell and, and at Jung's profound understanding of how the desire to win and to be right and the forces for victory and domination that are in him is what leads to war and conflict. And that the arriving at the capital S self through a kind of ruthless unselving, in the best sense of that word, not the, not the social socialized self, but the capital S self, how do, how do we find ourselves and then show up and meet each other there instead of these more ritualized, more delegated, more abstracted senses of how things are going to be organized? And that's before us now. And Jung, I think in this chapter, Jung's insights into this are, are profound. And as I said to you, I'd really like to read from Lawrence Vanderpost's experience of being a prisoner of war during World War II in a Japanese POW camp and his insight about, about that war. So Jung's understanding of what is leading to World War I and Vanderpost's understanding of World War II can illuminate something for us now the other thing that, that is happening right now is that we are in the spirit, and speaking of the spirit of the times, that not only are we in this um, powerful, narrow pass for the next six months of a power struggle, but Mars is in the sign he rules, Aries. And if you think about Aries, about about Achilles in the Iliad. That is the, this energy that's loose right now. It's the warrior who fights fearlessly and is really scary because he doesn't care if he dies. And Carol, it's conjunct Chiron. Is that what I'm seeing? It is right now. It's, it's been conjunct Chiron. So in a way it's been on a leash, but it's going to retrograde September, October, November in Aries and come into an argument. So this idea of how in the highest and best sense, we marshal ourselves, not in the sense of military, but in the sense of self-mastery. That we want to understand what the Hebrew word, masur, right strength. 
What is, what's our portion? What, as we roll over and stand up and come to terms with gravity and develop our strengths and occupy a self, what is the territory that we inhabit and maintain? And how does that territory bring us into abutment or an offense-defense relationship with how someone else marshals themselves? So in the highest and best sense of Mars, it's Dharma, what's the highest and best use of my mastery? In the lowest and most difficult iteration, it's my space is all that matters. And so we have in the collective, in the spirit of the times, something moving in all of us that wants to be established in our territory. And you can see in, in, in many communities in which I find myself this is, this is a little bit of an overstatement, but there's an orgy of self-righteousness that's loose, of accusations, some of them justified, some of them not, and this desire to stay on position and be right. And Jung has been talking about this through the entire Red Book, and these chapters are very much about, as he gets down into hell, this is where he's really struggling with this. Never mind that he's killed off the hero. Never mind that he has met the, the femi his feminine. He, now he's at this next iteration of how do you be here and be in a self? And how do you live with the reality of your own darkness and your own desire to be the winner? So, you know, there's plenty more that can be said about this, but these are the kind of thoughts that I'm having. Brilliant, Carol, and such a valuable place for us to jump off to some of the reading. And I think, let me just say, I guess, to start, that part of what I'm just really conscious as of, of as we start this chapter, we haven't seen the feminine in any form. And please correct me if I'm wrong, right? But we haven't seen the feminine in any form since the, the um, Castle in the Forest, right? No, that's right. Many <clears throat> chapters ago. So Castle in the Forest ends on 232. We're now almost 100 pages later, and we haven't seen the feminine in any form. Um, well, we're going we're gonna to see her in hell. Well, right. So, so Jung just <laughs> says in this moment, he says, oh, I've just found her, and she's been tortured, you know, taken. And you've got your hand up. Just, I just wanted to say one thing. Having lived in Germany shortly after the Holocaust and studied there, one of the things that was very evident was that the intelligentsia went into denial or... They went up on a magic mountain, look at Thomas Mann. That mm -hmm. is an enormous difference that we can make, that our intelligentsia does not escape or yeah. evade this. You're um, saying the intelligentsia, not, because when you said intelligence, and originally I thought of the NSA again, that's where my head is at. But what, I'm, what I'm thinking is I was in the philosophy department. There was not one, there was only one single philosophy professor who had stood up against the Nazis. All the rest of them had gone into an ivory tower. They even justified being in an ivory tower. That is what we mustn't do. Yeah. That hope lies in our not doing that. That's all I wanted to Thank say. Thank you, Anne. I, I think that it, for me, it's heartening, I guess, just for you to express that because I think even in this platform, I mean, it's tricky. We don't have that much um, background in in making academic platforms political you know i mean and so and so what are we doing here in this salome space so i just appreciate you voicing that thank you 
So the feminine, I mean, this, uh, Carol, you're going to set us up here. So um, well, I'll, I'll just begin. I'm beginning on 315 in the, in the chapter Hell. On the second night, after the creation of my God, a vision made known to me that I had reached the underworld. I find myself in a gloomy vault whose floor consists of damp stone slabs. In the middle, there is a column from which ropes and axes hang. At the foot of the column, there lies an awful serpent-like tangle of human bodies. At first, I catch sight of the figure of a young maiden with wonderful red-gold hair. A man of devilish appearance is lying half under her. His head is bent backward. A thin streak of blood runs down his forehead. Two similar diamonds have thrown themselves over the maiden's feet and body. Their faces bear an inhuman expression, the living evil. Their muscles are taut and hard, and their bodies sleek like serpents. They lie motionless. The maiden holds her hand over one eye of the man lying beneath her, who is the most powerful of the three. Her hand firmly clasps a small silver fishing rod that she has driven into the eye of the devil. I break out in a profuse cold sweat. They wanted to torture the maiden to death, but she defended herself with the force of the most extreme despair and succeeded in piercing the eye of the evil one with the little hook. If he moves, she will tear out his eye with a final jerk. The horror paralyzes me. What will happen? A voice speaks. The evil one cannot make a sacrifice. He cannot sacrifice his eye. Victory is with the one who can sacrifice. I'm just going to stop here. Because I am a 21st century person and a movie fan, I thought of The Lord of the Rings and The Evil Eye of Sauron. I'm, I am so struck in this passage by the imagery of the eye. And Jung goes on to talk on page 316, he says, nothing is more valuable to the evil one than his eye, since only through his eye can emptiness seize gleaming fullness. Because the emptiness lacks fullness, it craves fullness and its shining power, and it drinks it in by means of its eye, which is able to grasp the beauty and unsullied radiance of fullness. The emptiness is poor, and if it lacked its eye, it would be hopeless. It sees the most beautiful and wants to devour it in order to spoil it. So I'm, I'm very struck by this pop culture image that so much, in, and, and, and not just pop culture, but, but mythological culture, the mythological understanding that lay under Tolkien, you know, who was gathering with a lot of interesting mythological minds in England about the same time that Jung is going through this exploration. He's, you know, he's meeting with C.S. Lewis and, and a lot of other dons in Oxford and Cambridge, and they're concerned about these deep mythologies of good and evil because they're on the eve of World War I themselves. So I, I think about this idea of the eye, and Anne, maybe this is a good place for you to talk about your own kind of reflections on, on this particular part of, of the journey in hell. 
So what I wanted to say about the eye um, owes a great deal to Marilyn, who is also on the program and knows more about this than I do. But she brought me a fascinating paper by a man called Thomas Hanna on what is somatics. And what he's actually looking at there is the distinction between what we call the body and the soma. And I'll try to do this very quickly. The body is looking at, if you rub your shoulder and look at it, you're looking third person objectively at your hand on your shoulder. The soma is what you experience internally. If I close my eye, and there's the notion of the eye, if I close my eye, what is it that I'm feeling inside? And those are actually two very distinct experiences. The third person experience of thingness of the body, which is of course the objective scientific perspective that we've been in for 2,500 years to an extreme, and is really the masculine gaze. I'm not saying male, I'm saying masculine gaze. I've developed it highly in myself. The other, the inner gaze, play with it this week. You'll see there's quite a difference between the two of them. Is an inner gaze, what I call the yin gaze. And it's quite, quite different. One is not more valuable than the other, but they're very distinct and they're very different. The third person objective one relies heavily on the eye, the seeing, so that it, that third person objective one, that eye, is what takes in the beautiful as something external and is very threatened by the possibility of its being taken away. As I said, nothing is more valuable to that third person perspective than the eye. It's really, really true. So that if you lose the eye, what you're up against is the loss of meaningfulness. You're up against emptiness, which, which comes again and again and again. So it's having to grasp at fullness. When you look at the yin gaze or the yin path, the opposite is so. The emptiness itself is plenitude, is fullness. The best way of describing that, I think, is the black hole which looks empty, but is an absolute teeming womb of new constellations. So there, it, there's that third person way of experience emptiness, and it comes up throughout this chapter on health, which is very dependent on the eye. That, without that objectivity, without that consciousness, where you end up is meaninglessness. Everything gets obliterated with with the loss of that, your creeds, your sex, your beliefs. And, and you can watch that throughout this. When you close your eye and go within, it's another awareness, but it's really a very different awareness. That awareness has the subtlety of insight, let me say, call it, instead of sight. Well, I, and, I, and Anne, I've just been thinking of the word insight as you speak. I mean, the literal, you know, in sight, right? And, yeah. and the inner seeing and, and that connection neurologically with right brain, more of the yin space of the monitoring of the body and in the inner say, and, and also just what comes to me as you're speaking is what for Jung typologically, I think we can say is the difference between an extroverted sensate function mm -hmm. and an introverted sensate function and the kind of inner sensing versus the, the external sensing, right?
the only last thing I would say is that I find these these two chapters so interesting because you can really feel his battle. I mean, he's yeah. going to be one of the pioneers in in opening the yin gaze. Yes. And on the other hand, he's really struggling here, trying to let go of what will happen if he lets go of the masculine gaze. Then he will be emptiness, as he uses it here, which is a void and threatens, really threatens the meaningfulness of his life. But he's struggling, he's battling in here, that's all. Thank you, Anne, so much. It, it reminds me of, of Jacob wrestling with the angel, you know, where the angel says, I won't let go of you until you bless me. And, and this, whole, this whole chapter of, of wrestling with evil and wrestling with the devil and, and, and the arrival, to your point, and at the inner gaze of, 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 of the inner awareness of evil and good as his, that reality, that self, that it's, the, it's prelude to a whole different way of understanding. He says uh, on page 316, you know, he's created his God, his good God, his just God, his new God. And then he says, my God rose in the eastern sky, brighter than the heavenly host and brought about a new day for all the peoples, the God. This is why I want to go to hell. You know, right there, just right there, side by side. Would a mother not want to give up her life for her child? How much easier would it be to give up my life if only my God could overcome the torment of the last hour of the night and victoriously break through the red mist of the morning? You know, and then he goes on to talk about this struggle with evil and um, his awareness that they live, that, that, that they're yin-yang, they're in a constant dynamic interplay with each other and that the rejection of one leads to the projection of it and is the prelude to the kind of situation we find ourselves in today. And that he, that World War I and World War II, you know, was pre precipitated those. Shall I read a few paragraphs here? Yeah, please. I want to say too that I had never made the connection in this um, until you put that image up of one of Jung's earliest dreams and memories that he recounts in, in Memories, Dreams, Reflections. I was just looking for it, but I don't want to pull it forward too quickly. But but of the penis down underground with the eye on the top of the penis mm -hmm. and, you know, this phallic god, the dangerous phallic god. And until you put that image up with the eye on top, the tower with the eye, I hadn't made that connection to this um, section. So another thing to, for, for me to go back and read. So I'm going to read just a few paragraphs then. This is a very short chapter, but it's loaded with so much lyricism again. And here we get more kind of into Jung's understanding of the spirit of the times from the depths, right? He's, he's moving between the both, his own analysis. So he says, uh, if your beauty, this is 317. I'm just going to jump around a bit. 317. If your beauty grows, the dreadful worm will also creep up you, waiting for its prey. Nothing is sacred to him except his eye, with which he sees the most beautiful. He will never give up his eye. He is invulnerable, but nothing protects his eye. It is delicate and clear, adept at drinking in the eternal light. It wants you, the bright red light of your life. We're also kind of getting some allusions to the lowly chapter previously, 
you know, the one-eyed man. It just as we all know in our own dreams, if you start tracking your dreams, there's these hints of these images that repeat in totally different forms. So we can see that here with Jung's work. And then this paragraph that I'm about to read really speaks to next week's chapter. But for me, it took me a couple readings of the Red Book to see that link. So I'll just read this, this paragraph on 317. What abyss of blood dripping history separates you from me? I grasped your hand and looked at you. I lay my head in your lap and felt the living warmth of your body on mine as if it were my own body. And suddenly I felt a smooth cord around my neck, which choked me mercilessly and a cruel hammer blow struck a nail into my temple. I was dragged by my feet along the pavement and wild hounds gnawed my body in the lonely night. No one should be astonished that men are so far removed from one another that they cannot understand one another, that they wage war and kill one another. One should be much more surprised that men believe they are close, understand one another and love one another. Two things are yet to be discovered. First is the infinite gulf that separates us from one another. The second is the bridge that could connect us. Have you considered how much unsuspected animality human company makes possible? When my soul fell into the hands of evil, it was defenseless, except for the weak fishing rod, which it could use again with its power to pull the fish from the sea of emptiness. The eye of the evil one sucked in all the force of my soul, only its will remained, which is just that small fish hook. Carol, do you want to speak to that image again a little bit? You had spoken about the Fisher King. Well, it reminds me, you know, it, it's very much, you know, if you think about the idea of fishing, uh, of the idea of the depths, of, of what will you find in the depths, and that so many great myths, both Western and Asian, have to do, I think about Vishnu as a fish, and I think about Adar Goddess and the Oannes, the fish god of the ancient Sumerians, and this idea of the wisdom of, of, the, of the ocean, not just literally the ocean, but the oceanic, and of, of going for it, you know, in a very specific way, the fishermen going for it in a very specific way. I, I'm, I was very struck by, as, as someone who grew up fishing, you know, in my little rowboat on a lake in northern Idaho, that idea of, of rocking and, and being in the water and on the water and of how vast it is of what it is that you're dropping yourself into. Mm -hmm. um, not just to find a particular thing, but to, to, but to be in the process. And that's the, one of the things I was really struck by, by this image over and over again. And this, he says it's her last bit of will, you know, and he, he this is yeah. from what you've already read, but um, they wanted to torture the maiden to death, but she defended herself with the force of the most extreme despair and succeeded in piercing the eye of the evil one with that little hook. If he moves, she will tear out his eye with a final jerk. The horror paralyzes me. What will happen? It's a segue for me. I'd really like to read this quote from Lawrence Vanderpost. 
Please. Um, that that in, in some ways brings together several of the themes that this chapter on hell is discussing. Can you just uh, set, set it up just a little bit, who we're talking uh, about here? Lawrence Vanderpost, I'll just read from this. The distinguished English South African writer well known for his novels. Less well known is the fact that he was for 16 years a very close friend of Jung's, and it is from this friendship that have come both a remarkable film on Jung and this extraordinary evocation of Jung, the man, thinker, and healer. So in this particular chapter, thinking of hell, thinking of we should not be surprised that men do not understand each other. You know. And it's, it's from his biography of Jung called Jung and the Story of Our Time, Lawrence Vanderpost. When he talks about that we should not be surprised that men don't understand each other, that, that Jung talks about that. Vanderpost was captured during World War II and was a POW in a, in a Japanese internment center where they were brutally uh, tortured. And Vanderpost writes about this, this idea of the evil and the beautiful, of the times and the depths in a remarkable way. And on page 25 of this book, Jung and the Story of Our Time, he says, but perhaps the main lesson of all for me was that war did not come to us of its own account by some form of spontaneous generation in the human spirit nor did it come as a design imposed on us by greedy, ambitious men, armament manufacturers, international financiers, Freemasons, Jews, or any of the conventional scapegoats upon whom societies chose to inflict their own inadequacies. It was monstrously born of the way we all lived, what for fear of telling the truth and want of a better word we called a life of peace. I felt that somehow, in a way I could not define, we too had contributed to the reaction of Germans and Japanese to the reality of our time. We had to share some of the responsibility in the matter as though we, through our deeds of omission, were the accomplices before, but I hoped would cease to be after the fact of the war which we were fighting. Only by understanding how we were all apart, however opposite of the same terrible contemporary metal, could we defeat those dark forces with the true understanding of their nature and origin, which was vital if they were to be overcome in a manner to make us all free to embark on a way of peace that would not lead to a repetition of the vengeful past. That's fishing. That's where is it? That's the inner sight. That's the insight. What is my portion of this? And he goes on to say he's talking about noticing that the, that the, the torturers were always worse in the dark moon. We're in a dark moon in these two days. It was always worse in a dark moon. He said, I became increasingly aware of this compulsive mechanism in their spirit and was perpetually seeking for a way in which we could mitigate the process, but as yet had found no way of protest, verbal response, or silent attitude that did not aggravate it all the more. I could find no response more effective than that of following the example of Job on his ash heap, accepting all his dangerously unjust afflictions with similar patience. This is the God. This is the God that turns out to not be the shining, marvelous, all-suckering, helpful, shining God. 
I had a hunch that if we clung to some such positive acceptance of our fate, the extent to which we serve this feeling of purpose with reason, imagination, precision, and patience would give us some protection. This particular event was just such an occasion when we were all beaten up on sight for no apparent reason. As always, when this happened, I noticed a strange, unseeing look in the eyes of the Japanese. It was a look directed not at us, but at something beyond us, as if they were afraid that should their eyes focus on us, they would recognize our common humanity and the inner vision, which was their authority for the punishment they were inflicting, would not only be challenged, but extinguished. That's the fishing rod and the hook. Mm-hmm. It's just such a, a lived understanding of, of the paradox of, of how do you bring yourself, as Dr. Brewster said in the seminar, how do you show up and what, and what do you bring when you show up? And, and there's that quality of presence we can see in each other's eyes when we're really with each other versus yeah. kind of not really paying attention or dissociated or traumatized, the deer in the headlights frozen quality, right? We're learning so much EMDR, um, trauma work, various forms of trauma work are really understanding so much about peripheral vision, about the quality of the eyes and presence with each other and how we heal. And so a lot of what you just read, and I think there's another part of that passage too that speaks of how dehumanized we can become internally. And, and that, again, all of this work for Jung, part of the reason I track the feminine so carefully in Jung's work is that it is so deeply connected with evil over and over and over, you know, what has been banished. And again, for me, trying to understand how we all take responsibility for ourselves and our shadow can't neglect how we recall our love and compassion and empathy and connection. And for me, when we only speak of the shadow in Jung's work, or we speak of shame with, we're, you know, we're talking about white privilege or any form of raising of consciousness right now in our culture. I think when we speak about our badness, um, a lot of us shut down and, you know, and I think there's, it's natural. We only have so much ego strength to tolerate dealing with evil in that way. But if we also remember that evil is about the recollection of our love and connection with each other, connection and the capacity to see each other deeply with bright eyes, you know, the difference of being seen with bright eyes versus depressed eyes or dissociated eyes or distant eyes or distracted workaholic eyes or drunk eyes, these are all different qualities of being seen and seeing each other. So that just that passage of what Lawrence Vanderpost could see in the eyes of his captors. I mean, I think we've seen that. And when, when you're being stared at with the eyes of somebody who's not really there, there isn't anything you can do to alter their behavior. Right. I mean, that's not an exchange in the same way. Um, Somebody's gone. They're not really there, you know? Well, Well, he's in hell. Right. You know, and um, never mind Sartre and existential ideas about hell and th- theological ideas about hell. I, I find this chapter really, really potent. And, um, and, and this, again, this is a bit of a detour, but I was thinking about images of hell from different mythologies. And this is the goddess Hela, who was a daughter of Loki, 
And uh, in Norse mythology, Odin is confronted with three children by the trickster god Loki and um, an ogress. And there is the serpent that lives at the base of the tree of the world. There is Hel, H-E-L, a powerful sister. Um, and there is Fenrir, the wolf of war and despair and destruction. And they end up being cast into, um, Odin assigns the underworld to hell. So it's, it, it is interesting to me that in the popular imagination, this is uh, Kate Blanchett as the, the underworld goddess revived at the, at the end of the world, Ragnarok. And um, she's not the only female figure in hell. There are, there are many other mythologies, including in the ancient Sumerian mythology, Erishkigel, who is the sister of the queen of heaven. So this idea of the where, the, I mean, this is a Hollywoodized version of her, but when you read the Eddas, when you read the, the prose um, and the poetic Eddas and the sagas of the North, uh, the seeresses of that ancient world uh, who, who could look, speaking of eyes, who could look and see the world, they were called vulvas, were profoundly able to see her in a way the upper world were not able to see her. So I, I just circling back around again to how, how does insight, how does the feminine eye and the feminine seeing, and is the feminine assigned a role a masculine role by a man in his imaginings. It's just another picture of Jung really, really, you know, deep, deep in it, really deep struggling with this, not just, but, not, you know. I, I think the other thing is he sees her tortured, right? I mean, she's in hell. And, and for me, there's a quality of he seems to have turned away. From, I mean, again, this is just my own experience of this reading, right? But for 100 pages, she just disappeared. Yes. We were with the soul in very deep relationship for the whole part, first part of the book. In all these different ways, we were in this quite deep relationship with her and learning from her and deference to her and asking her questions and, and trying to, and apologizing, you know, I mean, it kind of ended right with this banality, the speaking of the banality of evil, yeah. right? He yeah. speaks to her, to her, the feminine in the castle, the Salome image there. He says, she's so banal. She's like a dime store novel. And he's embarrassed by her, right? And then he sort of reclaims her and, and apologizes. She disappears. A profusion of red roses appear, right? Mm. And then, then we don't see the feminine. We don't see the soul for a hundred pages almost. So then there's this quality. And I think to my own dreams and the way we are all raised in, in patriarchy, white supremacy, capitalism, these systems, these militaristic systems that really start to choke soul and eros and love and connection and compassion and empathy and all these things that soul ends up in hell. But um, he, has to, he has to come here. Yes, yes. He, he has to bring her here. He has to bring himself and her here for wholeness. I think what we're coming to with the next chapter for me is really about Jung reckoning with the quote-unquote blood on his hands with, with the feminine. And so I really hear you. I mean, is there more you want to say about why he, we need to find her here? You know, he says... At the very end of the chapter on hell, I still did not know what it means to give birth to a god. He doesn't know. And she has to be with him. 
No, she had that. They have to make this journey together. They have to. They have to go here together. He can't just leave it a hundred pages back with a bunch of red roses. Right, 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 right. And so, and and you know, you think about the old, the you know, a thousand. I mean, it's why I'm interested in the Nordic take on it. And the, and um, think about the Norns in uh, the Three Fates and the Seeresses of the Northern World very different from the mythologies of Africa or of the ancient Near East or certainly of China or of the American Southwest as far as that goes. But this idea, some sort of romantic chivalrous idea of women and men keeps her out of hell. Mm. And, and if, he's, if it's going to be whole, it has, he has to go all the way with it. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Thank you. Shall we open to questions open. what do you think are we ready yes we're ready Good. Um, we're as ready as we'll ever be yeah well and you know i think also just offering some space for processing the world now for folks who want to you know whatever is coming to you but to speak to the spirit of the times and the spirit of the depths in this chapter and i know you may we just lost your visual but we may you may have more to share too from all of this i just wanted to say that the, the, the more I go on, the more I realize there is a really distinct path between the yin path so the, and, and the, the, the yin gaze and the masculine gaze. I'm not yeah. trying to, to, to prefer one over the other, except that we have so focused on the masculine gaze for over 2,000 years that in order to have any equals of opposites, we have to now really, really, really nurture, cherish, and, and bring that yin gaze forward. And part of that is this word evil. And I really want to stress that how a culture, an era, a civilization defines evil will be the foundation stone of their meaningful ethics. And it is very, it's a very different ethos with the yin gaze and the masculine gaze. They are different ethos. So we need to a little bit unpack and look at that. For example, and this is Andrew Harvey speaking, when you come at it from the masculine gaze, you have evil as an unredeemable absolute, which is waiting for a punitive response. And I'm going to quote Andrew here. He said, it's such a crucial threshold as we are right now. An image in the collective psyche of a judging angry Punitive Father God is of less than no help. The ethos, the foundation stone of what is bad, and in other words, what is destroying us, was not something to be punished. It was something to be alchemically transformed. Mm-hmm. So it's that yin gaze has such a different approach to what evil means yeah and the the silver fishing hook was really awareness when i say we as the intelligent need not to go off into an ivory tower one of the greatest silver fishing hooks we have is raising awareness Mm -hmm. becoming aware of the pain of the humanity but that is looking at it through another another ethos that's all i wanted to say thank you Anne. Uh, it, it makes me think to just uh, the core of what you're saying, the core of Jung's work is this question of shifting morality to um, one of, of personal 
individuation, yeah. you know, which is yeah. both owning the shadow, but it's also bringing out our gifts and letting those gifts be, be in the world instead of kind of turning rotten and forgotten inside of our souls and body, right? So this individuation is morality in Jung's work, which is a more yin approach. It's more personal and internal. Uh, hi, Linda. Hi. So this is the first time that I'm on this, and it's been a while since I read the Red Book, so it's kind of nice to go through it. So I've been doing a lot of work on... Um, retelling and, and re-understanding re the myth of Athena, just as her uh, bringing up the feminine as she, you know, gets birth. So kind of a symbolic idea of her, of rebalancing of masculine and feminine energies. So immediately I think of Medusa and the gaze of Medusa and the, the, with the eye and the gaze and the um, turning to stone and kind of the, also the, the, Perseus's slaying of Medusa where cutting off her head brings new life um, and blood. And so I'm not, I don't really have a question, but I'm just trying to play with those ideas because, um, you know, Medusa and Athena is somewhat of a feminine gaze. Um, so again, I, I, I don't really have a question, but just some thoughts. I'm just wondering if any of you have um, so, some, some thoughts about that. Thanks, Linda. Carol, what do you think? I think it's great you bring in Medusa, you know, and, and this whole, I mean, we, we could spend hours on, on losing your head, you know, on men losing their heads, on women losing their heads, you know, birthing from heads. But I think this, I, just the idea, again, I'll, I'll, come, I'll come back around and, and fold in why the feminine has to be in hell and Anne's observation of the inner gaze, not just the outer gaze, but the inner gaze, that self-understanding and self-realization and the ownership of the dark and the difficult and the frightening, uh, as Jung is doing an absolute prelude to any outer gaze. The outer gaze precipitates division and the inner gaze makes it possible for the bridge and for empathy and compassion. So it's interesting to think about the uh, gaze of women. I think about Hella in uh, Odin's Hella and, and how, how a certain kind of woman is portrayed. But I, I never forget that, that these were written by men for kings. Yeah. So, you know, it's why I admire Jung. He's really struggling with an inheritance, really, of images and beliefs and systems of self-awareness that he's, he's down in it with it. Yeah, I was going to say the same, Carol. I mean, they're, these are still, I wouldn't call them the feminine gaze, although they're female figures. You know, they're, they're women in patriarchal mythology, um, either struggling under domination or torture or abuse or struggling against the power of their father or whatever it is. You know, we're seeing images of female power, but I wouldn't call it the feminine. I mean, this is where we get into linguistics, right? Yeah. Right. But I, but also, I mean, for me, it's kind of like in, in the work that I'm, I'm just beginning to do though, it's, it's about reclaiming the feminine with, with, with Athena and not seeing her portrayed from that patriarchal perspective. And so to me, there is this, because she, she reclaims Medusa's head, right? So there is that kind of reclaiming the darkness and, and that whole idea of the 
snakes and the turning to stone is in some ways can be like a stopping of the forward action and, you know, referencing that inner gaze. I don't know, as I say, I'm just kind of, the ideas are kind of just swirling in my head about Mm -hmm. it, but. um, Powerful, Linda, it sounds wonderful. Thanks. Yeah, it makes me think of one of my very favorite authors right now, um, Madeline Miller. I mean, just the reclaiming of the female stories in a different, it's beautiful, thank you. Hi, Dan. Hi. So um, I've been listening to the replays. I haven't gotten all the way caught up, but I couldn't help but sort of have an observation about the story of the Red Book and the sort of parallels it's having to what we're currently going through how at the beginning uh quarantine had just started and we sort of were accepting it going inward acknowledging the feminine uh sort of collectively and we could accept it a little bit uh sort of like the beginning of the the red book it was challenging uh but salome was there and uh, he, he has sort of accepted her presence. And we sort of had that. And maybe, maybe we think we've acknowledged the feminine collectively. But the events as of late in America, being an analogy to us entering hell as well, and having to actually confront the evils inside of us as individuals and how terrifying it is outwardly uh, similar to the terrifying visions that Jung was having. I feel like it is all of our individual responsibility like Jung took on uh, maybe inadvertently and now we're forced into it to face the evil inside of us and our uh, collective shadow so yeah that was my uh my thought i wanted to share right with you thank you dan you you can write the summary for what we're up against here <laughs> with the red book lawns <laughs> think you nailed it hi ashley hi carol how are you i'm good how are you today I'm good i woke to because images I, I think um and art often speak sometimes more profoundly, more loudly than I think anything. I woke to an image today of a female protester in Portland that to search, she's called the Naked Athena. And reading on page 315, where it says, she defended herself with the force of most extreme despair and succeeded in piercing the eye of the evil one with the little hook. And then it goes on to say victory is with the one who can sacrifice. It, it really just made me think of that image. Yeah. Um, and, and for those of you who, who, aren't, who don't know what I'm talking about, it's, it's a female protester down in downtown Portland who sat in a goddess pose or a birthing pose naked in front of the, the police who were firing rubber bullets into the crowd. And the bravery and just um, the rawness, I think, uh, to me, that speaks of of the feminine and really what this chapter 
of the Red Book, you know, that, that imagery is, is just uh, so powerful and it, it <laughs> continues to bring me to tears just to think about the risk that the feminine has to continue to take. And um, I think it's a really powerful image maybe to uh, pair up with this chapter. And I think it's really, you know, <laughs> funny, not funny, not coincidental that it, it appeared in my newsfeed at the same, on the same day, <laughs> this chapter in the book. Yeah, no, it showed up in, on uh, in Facebook last night. Um, and not only that picture of her, but pictures of, of single women uh, standing in a line. And maybe, Sati, you want to talk about your own experience? I would, well, yeah, I mean, that uh, during the Iraq protest, this is part of what I'm reflecting on. Um, Ashley, Carol and I were speaking about that exact image. She brought it up um, before we started with all of you and the power of it. And um, I was thinking back when I was 21 or something, 19, 18 or 19, when the Iraq war started and I was organizing protests um, while in college and was in downtown Portland protesting what's unfolding now. I mean, it's not dissimilar. And, and I remember one night in pouring rain, standing by myself in front of a line of um, cops in battle gear, you know, just an insane amount of SWAT team battle gear lining a street. And it was a powerful moment. I mean, I stood there in the cold rain for a very long time by myself with a peace sign, you know, I felt like kind of a nerd. It's an awkward thing. You know, it's both sort of powerful and awkward to be standing in silence in front of a line of men in battle gear. But it was powerful in that when they drove away, they all got back on the sides of their car holding on to the van driving away in battle gear. And I looked at them and one of the men just put his hands down with a peace sign so that none of his, you know, colleagues could see it. But he was saying to me, I'm with you. And it was a powerful moment for me. I mean, I, you know, I'm angry that he doesn't do that publicly. You know, I mean, I'm angry that he's still getting in battle gear when we're all we're saying is we shouldn't be bombing people in another country for literally oil. I mean, what in God's name are we doing spending our money in this way? You know, so on and on, right? We've been in this story for centuries, but it is powerful for me to feel and remember that, but to see um, the female figure um, in contrast to the militarism and the financial waste and on and on. Well, to your point about that, these deep roots, including the the trauma of it. Um, in the 60s, I put my infant son in a stroller and marched against the Vietnam War. And I think, Ashley, to your point about the feminine in the face of, uh, again, I'll bring it back to Jung. It's why Jung has to be in hell with, with her. Mm-hmm. That's why we, that we have to be there. And it brings us to this. It brings us to this conversation and this decision. And, you know, I'm also reflecting for a lot, a while, I, I, I regretted for a long time not being a part of the consciousness raising circles in feminism in the 70s, 60s, 70s, you know, 50s, like that felt like such a powerful to imagine women in a room together, sharing stories and like waking up together has always been an image for me of power. And I've reflected on our salon sometimes just feeling like consciousness raising spaces together you know, um, just being with each other and remembering collective trauma and the yin space and embodiment and myth and all of this. So again, just honoring all of that. Can I I say, you know, in regards to it too, I'd like to think 
you know, the police reaction to it was that they backed down, that they didn't know what to do with it. I wasn't there, so that's what I'm reading. I don't know what actually happened, but that they backed down and, and moved away. It reminds me in the movie Children of Men, you know, at the sort of at the end of a battle scene, a woman walks out of the hotel with, a, with an infant and for a moment war is on pause. And what I like to, to hope for is that just this, there's this momentary pause when we think of the feminine, when we bring the feminine to that conversation, that there's this momentary pause, you know, that we can kind of rebirth this, this new way of being. It's, it feels to me a lot like nonviolent resistance, too. I mean, it's a powerful part of what Gandhi and Mandela and MLK and the suffragettes who really uh, taught Gandhi a lot of what he knew, you know, really going back to all nonviolent resistance, you know, of saying we're not going to beat you with guns and clubs, but we can beat you by forcing you to acknowledge your own absurdity, that you are standing against nakedness or you are standing against... A, a line of people who will take your beatings and force you to move to the next person to beat them and the next person and beat them and be forced to see your own idiocy instead of engaging in the battle directly. It's, it's a, it's a rejection of the projection. Thank you, Ashley, for bringing that forward. Thank you. Hi, John. Almost uh, 28 years ago, I was in a Joseph Campbell seminar, in which we spent a whole hour on this, exact same motif, the descent into hell. And I remember a point that someone brought up that there's this line in the Apostles' Creed that says Jesus descended into hell, but in the Western Church they say he just went to the upper levels and just released the virtuous pagans. But in the Eastern Church they say he no, he really went all the way down to the bottom, to the depths of hell, and that's precisely why the Eastern Church believes there's hope for redemption for the entire cosmos because he really went all the way through hell completely. And this was a Unitarian church, so this is, that's where you would hear something like that. So I thought that was interesting. I, it, it seems much more profound and much more in sync with the union way of looking at it to me. It's a good point, John. Thank you. Let's see. Lori, hi. So yesterday in um, Dr. Brewster's salon, she talked about rage and the racial complex and she talked about how you almost how people lose their minds and become possessed by rage and sort of lose themselves and at the same time that I was on that zoom I was also in suburban Cowlitz County and you could feel like everybody who the wearing of the mask and the rejection of wearing of the mask in public. And you could feel people were so angry and like they would have their mask, you know, half off or a hole in it or not wearing a mask. And there was all this, all this rage, um, fury about wearing a mask. And I am curious what you three think is the symbolism of that why are people so full of rage about wearing masks? Oh, man. Welcome to the next three hours of conversation. <laughs> um, thank you, Lori, for the question. Carol, do you want to say anything? Well, I think that there is fury over everything right now. This is Mars and Aries. 
that in that that in the collective everyone's organizing their territory I, I talked about this at the very i don't know if you were with us at the very beginning laurie astrologically speaking not only do we have a, a an enormous contraction and constellation of power the collapse and the and the um, redirection of power but we have individual martial territories organizing themselves kind of mask by mask if it's not the mask if it isn't the wearing of the mask it's somebody said something you disagree with or somebody um took a position that you find perfectly comfortable deriding it's so palpable right now it happens to surface around the mask I was driving back from the beach last week and in the rural communities along Highway 26, there were sandwich boards. Impeach, sign here, impeach Kate Brown for her abuse. So there's plenty of umbrage to go around. And it's going to be like this intensely for the rest of the year. I have been here since the beginning. And at the same time, I was also working on this project that was about um, the German word Maskenheit. And, and I, it talks about the, I don't know German, but it talks about the, it, it's called translated, I think, as carnival license. And, and I'm trying to figure out why masking itself is mm. such a particular, you know, trigger. Maybe you know something about that. Well, I know that every New Year's Eve, for example, there's um, a celebration where everybody wears a mask. I, I didn't, but I don't happen to be German. And on that night, you can sleep with anyone you want. So husbands and wives, everybody just goes off and you do all the things that you wouldn't normally do, but you have permission that night because of, and, and you wear a mask. So you give expression to those things. But I wanted to say another thing about rage. And a few weeks ago, I talked about um, the uh, goddess, the, the Vedic goddess of never not broken. Mm-hmm. And um, she rides on an alligator. And what she does is riding on an alligator and being never not broken in a never not broken world is that she can pick her, she can pick us up, which she may be doing right now hold us in her mouth and what an alligator does is shake and shake and shake and shake and shake. But that the motive is to shake us up, not to kill us, to wake us up. And I think that's a tremendous example of another, as it were, yin gaze, where the object really is, I've got to shake you up for you to wake up. But that is her motivation, is coming from a much deeper place of compassion, not anger, although it may look like it if you're in her mouth being shaken. You know, Satya, what do you think about, the ma- about ma- anger and masking? Yeah, I mean, truly, Lori, I think it's such a huge question that I'm going to say a few things in response as well. Um, I think on some level... It could be anything. I mean, we've seen this with wanting limits on the amount of gas guzzling vehicles and the rage in America around, you know, the idea that that's limiting choice. You know, I mean, I think it could be any number of things that elicits rage. 
But we are now seeing this absurd flip, right, where women have been saying we want control of our bodies and our healthcare decisions. And, and that's been pushed against by the right, the far right for how many decades. And now suddenly, you know, the idea that, oh, I want control over my face, I want control over my body. It's like, yeah, no shit. It doesn't feel great to be told that you don't have complete control of your body. So I think there's an, a latent rage of understanding of what has been spoken about on the left for a long time. But obviously, I think what you're speaking to as well is the number of symbols here with mask wearing and the loss of identity, perhaps um, the loss of autonomy to oneself. We could go on and on and on. Um, I, I think for me, the relevance, part of the potency of this is that it is also forcing consciousness within the individual skin. So people over and over, right, we're hearing stories of people saying, I didn't think it was real. I didn't think it was real. I thought it was a hoax. Oh, it turns out it's not. And that they're learning that in their own families with the dying of a family member, with their own beings, their own bodies, of the the necessity of recognition of reality in the way that other people live it. You know, there's a line in The Undiscovered Self, Jung's uh, beautiful essay, where he says, you know, people, there are people who still believe if you don't think a virus exists, it doesn't exist. That that is a certain layer of consciousness. He, he names exactly what we are living in right now. And so it's that forcing from one level of consciousness that says, if I believe it doesn't exist, it doesn't exist. And then you're forced to say, oh, something else happened here. I wanted it to not exist, but it might in fact exist. I could go on and on. Honestly, I, I think that. you've opened up a Thank huge you. problem. Yeah. That was amazing. And also the combination of the Vedic goddess, you know, shaking people into awake and what you just said is perfect. Thank you. Yeah. And I, I think just again, to reiterate Carol's point as well, because I've been feeling it these last two days in such a deep way. I mean, yesterday, was a real shake for me of a remarkable number of little strange conflicts going on. They were all little, but really bizarre little conflicts and messages and things unfolding, one with my neighbor over noise. But, you know, it's like, oh, God, <laughs> there's so much going on in the air right now. So mm -hmm. I really honor astrologically what Carol is speaking to and pointing us towards are all of our needs right now to kind of keep taking deep breaths. And I'm certainly gonna be remembering that so <laughs> me too sending love to all of you thank you thanks everybody thank, thank you bye-bye for more please visit salameinstitute.com and please review rate and subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already many thanks to our incredible podcast team to Anne Carroll for German translation and soulful insights, to our producer, Ayal Alvis, for turning this rough audio into a podcast, to Kelly Swenson for your dedicated work behind the scenes, to Haley Hendricks for the incredible podcast music, and to Ray Davis for our beautiful art. You're all brilliant and talented, and we're very grateful. Please tune in soon for another episode of the Salome Podcast.